When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott, and I'm here to read you a bedtime story. This week, I wanted to take a little break from fiction, as I tend to do every once in a while. I was thinking about one of my favorite ghost stories the other day. One that is going to be included in this episode, actually, but it'll be the last one because it's the most famous one, and I bet it's the one you're thinking of when I tell you it has to do with a ghost actually influencing the outcome of a court case. And I wondered if there were any other instances like that. Lo and behold, I found a few. And as always, you can always find all my sources linked in the show notes. That is with every one of my true episodes. Now, let's get on with the ghosts, shall we? The Hammersmith Ghost. Picture this. It's 1803. It's late November. You live in Hammersmith, a district of West London. There's a war going on. The Napoleonic War, to be exact. Earlier this year, the very last people to ever be sentenced to being hanged, drawn, and quartered are executed. It's the end of an era. Heck, some guy named Frederick Albert Windsor just demonstrated this new invention called gaslighting. The type that lights lamps, not the type that convinces you that you're crazy. You're not thinking about all that, though. No. You have something else that weighs on your mind. As you walk along the river, coming home from work or perhaps from the old pack horse inn where you stopped for a drink, you pull up your collar or wrap your woolen shawl a little tighter to protect from the chilly autumn wind. It's nigh winter now, and it's getting colder and colder. You hope that the chill is just that, just the weather, and not of the icy fingers of the ghost. Not a ghost, the ghost. The one that has been attacking both locals and travelers alike. 
You relax a little as you pass a group of men with firearms patrolling the streets. They're on the lookout for the Phantom Fiend. Why they think pistols are going to fight off a ghost is beyond you, but it brings you comfort anyway, and you manage to get home safe and sound. This time, let me introduce you to the Hammersmith Ghost. In the fall and early winter of 1803, locals and passers-by in Hammersmith were afflicted by a tall, white phantom who would physically attack people and even caused at least one or maybe two deaths. This spirit was thought to be the ghost of a young man who had cut his own throat the year before. Because, as the local religion dictated at the time, those who died by suicide were not allowed to be buried on consecrated ground. Thus, their souls would never be able to rest. So what's a restless and angry spirit to do but to wreak havoc on the town and people who must have caused him anguish in life? How can a ghost kill someone, you ask? When researching older subjects, I like to find sources that were recorded as closely as I can to the actual year the incident occurred. So, I present to you this excerpt from Old and New London, Volume 6, originally published by Castle, Petter, and Galpin, London, 1878. One poor woman, while crossing near the churchyard about 10 o'clock at night, beheld something, as she described it, rise from the tombstones. The figure was very tall and very white. She attempted to run, but the supposed ghost soon overtook her and, pressing her in his arms, she fainted, in which situation she remained some hours till discovered by neighbors who kindly led her home when she took to her bed and died two days afterwards. According to other sources, the ghost also did the same to a young pregnant woman who happened to be passing by. She and her unborn child also died days later of shock. Thomas Groom, a brewer's servant, also came upon the ghost. I'll let him tell it in his own words. I was going through the churchyard between eight and nine o'clock, with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket, when some person came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard behind me, and caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant, who was going on before, heard me scuffling, asked what was the matter, then, whatever it was, gave me a twist round, and I saw nothing. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist, and felt something soft, like a greatcoat. The ghost then went on to frighten a wagon driver, who was so scared, he abandoned his wagon, which was affixed with a team of expensive horses and 16 confused and terrified passengers. Just straight up left them all. On December 29th, a night watchman named William Girdler actually almost caught this alleged ghost. He saw the quote-unquote spirit haunting Beaver Lane. He claimed to have grabbed him by a white covering, a sheet or tablecloth, which the ghost then shook off 
and ran away. Of course, these attacks made locals angry and jumpy, so some men decided to patrol the streets with guns to track down this ghost. I mentioned earlier that it seemed silly to fight a ghost with a gun, but many of the residents of Hammersmith were convinced it was no ghost, but some sort of prankster. This prankster, however, had gone too far, and, in their opinion, needed to pay. Vigilante justice wasn't unheard of at the time. In fact, I just learned London hadn't even yet formed an official police force. So the people took it upon themselves. This brings us to Thomas Millwood, a man whose name still echoes through the English court system because, wow, did he make an impact. Millwood was a bricklayer. Oddly enough, even though he was part of what could be considered a trade where one could get pretty filthy on a daily basis, I would assume, his uniform consisted of, and I quote, linen trousers entirely white, washed very clean, a waistcoat of flannel, apparently new, also very white, and an apron, which he wore round him. Not a good look when people have their eyes peeled for a man in all white. Millwood was caught by the ghost hunters three times. The first two times, he insisted he was not the one pulling pranks. He was just a hardworking man going about his business in his work clothes. It wasn't his fault that they happened to be all white. During the ensuing trial, which I will get to soon, his housemate, a Mrs. Fulbrook, who was related to Millwood by marriage, was asked if she ever warned him about the clothing he wore. She said, On Saturday evening, he and I were at home. For he lived with me. He said he had frightened two ladies and a gentleman who were coming along the terrace in a carriage, for that the man said he dared to say, there goes the ghost. He said that he was no more a ghost than he was and asked him, using a bad word, did he want a punch in the head? I begged of him to change his dress. Thomas, says I, as there is a piece of work about the ghost and your clothes look white. Pray do put on your greatcoat, that you may not run any danger. I don't know what answer he made. He said he wished the ghost was catched, or something of that sort. Well, Millwood did not heed his housemate's warning. On January 3rd, 1804, William Girdler, remember him? He was once again patrolling Beaver Lane around 10.30 p.m. Girdler says he ran into an excise officer named Francis Smith. I admit, I am too American and had to look up what an excise officer was, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. And it was basically, or is basically, someone who would appraise things for the English government to tax, or make sure the taxes on goods like tobacco, alcohol, ammunition, etc. were all paid up on taxes. Kind of, sounds like he worked for the IRS, essentially, in American terms. Anyway, Smith was armed with a shotgun and told Girdler he was going in search of the ghost. They agreed to meet up later, but went their separate ways. While Girdler continued down Beaver Lane, 
Smith went on to Black Lion Lane, where he ran in to Millwood. Our bricklayer had been visiting his parents and sister, who lived on Black Lion Lane. He wasn't just wandering about for no reason in the middle of the night. I've told you I prefer sources as close to the original date as possible. Well, I found from the transcription from the court case itself, um, let's hear from Anne Millwood, Thomas's sister. She can tell us what happened that night. Between 10 and 11 o'clock, my brother came to my father's house. He had been to see for his wife, who was at Mr. Smith's, the Outriders. My mother and I were just going to bed when he came in. He said, Mother, are you going to bed? I made answer, Yes. Thomas, is your wife come home? He said, No. She will not be at home for half an hour. I said, Will you come in and I will sit with you? He came in and I sat with him. We talked a considerable time, till my mother fell asleep. While my brother was sitting, I heard the watchman crying past eleven o'clock as I thought. I told my brother, your time is expired, you had better go. He did not attend to me, but sat for a considerable time. I said, you had better go, it is dangerous for your wife to come home by herself. He jumped up and said, I will go. He bid my mother and me good night, and went out of the door and shut it. As soon as he was gone, I jumped up and went to the door. As soon as I got to the door, I heard a voice say, Damn you, who are you and what are you? Damn you, I will shoot you. And whilst they were speaking, the gun went off, and I saw the flash of fire from the gun. I went to the door and called Thomas as loud as I could three or four times, but nobody answered. I went into my mother and said, I do think my brother is shot. I did not stay for an answer, but went up to my father, who was in bed, and said, Do get up, for my brother is shot. He would not believe me. And then I went into a room adjoining and awakened a young man. He would not believe me neither. I went to the window and called Thomas as loud as I could. At last I said, well, if nobody will believe me, I will go myself. I ran out of the door, and when I got halfway from my father's house to my brother's, I saw my brother laying dead at the gate. I took hold of his right hand and said, Speak to me. But he could not, for he was quite dead. His head was laying towards me as I went up to him. Anne then ran to a neighbor's house, and several people helped carry Millwood's corpse to a nearby inn. A surgeon eventually came to examine the body days later, and declared his death was a result of a gunshot wound on the left side of the lower jaw with a small shot, about size number four, one of which had penetrated the vertebrae of the neck and injured the spinal marrow. When confronted by the men who helped carry the body, Francis Smith was told by a local wine merchant, a John Locke, to go to his lodgings and wait there. 
Locke testified that Smith was agitated and claimed when he fired he didn't know the person he hit. He said that Smith also claimed that Millwood had advanced to him and irritated his fears. John Locke then said, Directly, I advised him to go to his lodgings. He went, and afterwards, when they called to him, he came down directly. But he wished to surrender himself in the first instance. He said, first, I wish you would take me into custody, or send for somebody. This case was incredibly messy. You see, it was argued that it couldn't have been self-defense, because Millwood hadn't attacked Smith. However, Smith also hadn't shot Millwood on purpose. He thought he was shooting someone who was a threat to the community. The Lord Chief Baron, who oversaw the case, argued that even if Millwood was the alleged ghost of Hammersmith, that pretending to be a ghost and frightening people wasn't a felony. If anything, it would only incur a small fine. Definitely not a crime that would merit being shot and killed on sight. He noted that Smith hadn't even tried to apprehend Millwood before he shot. The jury deliberated and came back with a sentence of manslaughter. But the Lord Chief Baron refused that verdict, ordering the jury to either find Smith guilty or to acquit him. So, the jury came back after another hour with a new verdict. Guilty. At the time, that meant an immediate sentence of death. The Lord Chief Baron MacDonald said that he intended to bring the court case before the king, and he did, and the sentence was then commuted by order of the king to a year's worth of hard labor. So what do you think? What should Francis Smith's punishment have been? Oh, and if you're thinking, well, it seems Millwood really could have been the ghost wreaking havoc on the community, so maybe he deserved it. I mean, remember that story he told his housemate? Uh, the fact that he wore all white? Well, I have one last bit of information for you. Eventually, the ghost revealed himself. John Graham, an elderly shoemaker, had been pretending to be a ghost by using a white sheet to frighten his apprentice, who had been scaring Graham's children with ghost stories. There is no record of Graham ever being punished. Now, let's take a break for some ads, shall we? After all, I have an evil little kitten who I need to spoil. Unless, of course, you're a Patreon patron. In that case, no ads for you. And I'll see you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. 
After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Now, welcome back. This is Stambovsky v. Ackley. Well, hello there. I hear you're in the market for a beautiful old Victorian mansion. Why, you've come to the right place. I'm a realtor selling this beautiful... What? Haunted. (laughs) Why would you even ask that? Now, the floors are original to the... I'm sorry, spirits? Well, your spirits could be beautifully displayed at this custom-built wet bar. You mean ghosts? Of course. Did I tell you that the floors were original to the home? Okay, so there's a ghost. It's not like you can sue me about it. In fact, I'd like to see you try. Welcome to the case of Stembovsky v. Ackley, also known as the Ghostbusters ruling. This is a little quickie of a story, and one that isn't as much of a bummer as the first and the last. I thought you deserved a lighter little break. So, the year is 1989, and Helen Ackley was ready to sell her house. Her very haunted house. Ackley's family had owned a gorgeous Victorian-era mansion in Nyack, New York, for several decades. All that time, she claims that they dealt with this incredibly active poltergeist activity. She had even been sending in stories about the haunting to Reader's Digest since 1977. Some of the activities included gifts being given to her children and grandchildren, such as silver tongs when her daughter got married and a golden baby ring when her granddaughter was born. Both allegedly appeared from nowhere. She also said her daughter Cynthia was awoken every single morning by a ghost shaking her entire bed. The ghost wasn't too bad, though. When Cynthia was on vacation from school, she informed the ghost and he stopped shaking so she could sleep in. I actually found one of the original articles that Helen Ackley wrote for Reader's Digest, and it even includes a really creepy photo of a ghost on the staircase. It's, it's great. Bonus, it was scanned from the magazine itself, so it has some awesome 1970s ads, including one for something called Grease Relief. I'll definitely link that in the sources for you to peruse. It's a fun read. She tells a story about a plumber hearing phantom footsteps and begging her not to leave him alone in the house. She also describes a solid apparition she once saw while painting a room. She asked out loud if he liked the color. She then turned her head to see... He was the most cheerful and solid-looking little person I've ever seen. A cap of white hair framed his round, apple-cheeked face, and there were piercing blue eyes under thick white eyebrows. His light blue suit was immaculate. The cuffs of the short, unbuttoned jacket turned back over ruffles at his wrists. A white ruffled stock showed at his throat. 
Below, breeches cut to his kneecaps, he wore white hose and shiny black pumps with buckles. She also notes that she had not been drinking that day. I will say, that type of that manner of dress is a lot older than a Victorian-era mansion, so I don't know, <laughs> you know, but maybe someone older was there before, I don't know. So 1989 rolls around, and she decides to sell the home. She told her broker, Ellis Realty, that she would not sign her end of the contract when it came to closing the sale unless it was revealed to the buyer that the house was haunted. She definitely wanted the buyer to know. Enter Jeffrey Stembofsky, who put down a $32,000 down payment and agreed to a price of $650,000 for the house. This is where the trouble starts. Ellis Realty claims that they informed Stembofsky per Ackley's terms, and that he even made a joke, saying he laughed and said, We'll have to call the Ghostbusters. Stambovsky claims that he was never told anything about the haunting before he signed the contract and paid the down payment, that he wasn't made aware until afterwards. Well, Stambovsky asked that there be a meeting arranged with both the broker and Helen Ackley so he could ask questions about the ghosts. Helen let loose in this meeting and told him all about all the paranormal activity she and her family had experienced over decades. Stambovsky immediately filed an action requesting rescission of the contract of sale and for damages for fraudulent misrepresentation by Ackley and Ellis Realty, claiming again that the information about the ghosts had not been disclosed to him before he closed on the house. Apparently, everyone in the area knew that this house was haunted, but Stambovsky claims he was not aware of any of the folklore surrounding these ghost stories. Stambovsky didn't attend the closing. He wasn't forced to buy the home, but he did lose his entire $32,000 down payment. A New York Supreme Court trial court dismissed the action, but Stambovsky appealed. In the appeal, Stambovsky was allowed the rescission of the contract. Here's some legalese to throw at you about the case. Reversed. A house purported to be haunted, which impairs the value of the property and is left undisclosed to the buyer, can constitute a basis for rescission of the purchase agreement. Where a condition, which has been created by the seller, materially impairs the value of the contract and is peculiarly within the knowledge of the seller or unlikely to be discovered by a prudent purchaser exercising due care with respect to the sale, non-disclosure constitutes a basis for rescission as a matter of equity. Even an express disclaimer, e.g., as is, will not be given effect where the facts are peculiarly within the knowledge of the party invoking it. So folks, if you find out the house that you are about to buy is haunted and the original owners knew and didn't tell you, you just might be able to escape the horror movie before it begins. The Greenbrier Ghost. Our last story of the evening is one that you may have heard before. It's the most infamous on the list, I think. This is the tragic, frightening, and wondrous tale of Elva Zona Hester Shue. Zona, which is the name she went by most, was born in 1876 in Greenbrier, West Virginia. Well, 
That's what her memorial marker says. I also read that she may have been born in 1875 or even as early as 1873. There aren't a ton of records, unfortunately, left over in regards to Zona. In October 1896, she met a man named Erasmus Stribling Trout Shoe, a blacksmith. They had a whirlwind romance and quickly married. But by January of the very next year, Zona was dead. Her death was sudden and unexpected. Everyone was shocked, including her husband, who had sent a local boy named Andy Jones to check on Zona on January 23rd, 1897, to inquire as to if she needed him to bring anything home from town. The Shoes lived in a rural house, you see, and this considerate husband didn't want his wife to have to go all the way to the market. When the boy made it to the house, he went inside and thought he saw a strange sight. He thought he saw Zona asleep on the floor. When he approached her, he noticed her lying in a strange position, with her arm across her chest and her head tilted to the side. He knew something was wrong when he called, Mrs. Shoe? Mrs. Shoe? And she didn't wake up. He ran home to inform his mother, and she called the local doctor, George W. Knapp. I also read an account that the boy ran directly to Erasmus Shoe, and he was the one who called for the doctor, rushing home to see what had happened to his beloved wife. Either way, Dr. Knapp got to the Shoe residence an hour later, it's a lot of time, where he found that Mr. Shoe had already taken his wife upstairs, washed her body, redressed her in a dress with a high stiff collar placed her in bed, and put a veil over her face. You know, just normal things you do when you find your wife dead on the floor on a random Saturday. While Dr. Knapp examined the body, Mr. Shu held his wife's head and neck, absolutely devastated at his loss, and when the doctor tried to examine Zona's head and neck, Mr. Shu became angry and agitated in the absolute throes of grief. So the doctor just didn't. He just didn't continue the examination. He stated that Zona had died of everlasting faint, basically a heart attack. He later changed that diagnosis to complications from pregnancy, and I don't know why. When the body was prepared for burial, Shu insisted he be there, still cradling her head, even placing a scarf tightly around her neck, stating that it was her favorite and she would have wanted to be buried with it. He also propped up her head with a pillow and a rolled up cloth. Nothing weird here. During the open casket wake at Zona's mother's house, Shu planted himself at the head of the casket. It was strange, but the friends and family who attended just explained it away as Shu being so plagued by grief that he didn't want to leave his wife's side in the final moments before she would be put into the ground. After all, he was an upstanding, hard-working man. Those types of guys never have anything to hide, right? Mary Jane Hester, Zona's mother, was never a fan of Erasmus Shoe, who also went by Trout or Edward, depending on who you spoke to. She knew that her young and healthy daughter couldn't have just dropped dead. So she prayed. 
she prayed to her daughter to show her the truth. And oh, she did. Mary Jane started telling friends and family and neighbors that Zona had appeared to her four nights in a row as a spirit. First, as a bright light, getting more and more visible every night. Telling her mother tales of Shu's abuse about how he beat her and that final night, she revealed that because she hadn't cooked meat for his supper, in a violent rage, he broke her neck. Zona's spirit, now fully formed, then turned her head all the way around, turned and walked away into an abyss, her backwards head staring at her mother the entire time. Fortunately, instead of writing her off as a crazy person, a few people believed Mary Jane, including her brother-in-law, Johnson Hester, who introduced Mary Jane to prosecutor John Preston. Preston didn't believe Mary Jane at first, but as she kept telling her story, something about it moved him, and he decided to investigate further. First, they went to Dr. Knapp and questioned him about the shoddy autopsy he had done. The doctor finally admitted that his examination had been incomplete. He hadn't looked at the young woman's head or neck. During this time, Preston pushed for Zona's body to be exhumed, all the while looking into the past of Erasmus' shoe. They were granted the exhumation. They laid the decaying body of poor Zona in a local schoolhouse. This is what the local paper reported. On the throat were marks of fingers, indicating that she had been choking that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck. Preston's other investigations were also coming to fruition. So this is another point where I come to two different stories about Shu's first wife. If you listen to the show and you've listened to some of my other truer old tales um, or stories, You'll know that some of these older ones, there's just, you know, records weren't kept as well, or they just didn't survive, and a lot of this is word of mouth. So, it, yes, it does, it turns out, first, it, it did turn out that he had been married twice before he married Zona. So, one source claims that his first wife also died of a broken neck when falling from a haystack. But I also read that she was alive. And I read this more than the broken neck one. I read that she was alive, but had divorced Shu after he was incredibly abusive and cruel to her. His second wife did, in fact, die under mysterious circumstances. One account I read said that she had been helping him build a chimney, and he accidentally dropped a pile of bricks on her head. Shu had also spent time in a penitentiary for stealing a horse, and allegedly boasted to his prison mates that he planned to marry seven times in his life, and then bragged about getting rid of his last two wives. Well, this was enough to get Shu arrested. During the trial, Preston tried to keep the ghost aspect of the story out of the courtroom. He didn't want to give the jury any reason to completely write off the entire story and set Shu free. 
But Shu's representation pounced on the ghost story. They ridiculed Mary Jane and tried to trip her up so it looked like she was lying or mentally unstable. It didn't work, however, and the jury and the judge seemed to believe her story. Plus, the evidence was undeniable. Shu was sentenced to life in prison. There was an attempt by the townspeople to hang him themselves, but it was stopped by law enforcement and he was put on a train. He died in March of 1900 from an illness that swept through the prison. Mary Jane Hester never got her daughter back, but lived with the idea that she could rest peacefully knowing her killer was brought to justice. Mary Jane lived until 1916 and would happily recant the story of how her daughter's ghost solved her own murder. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to the subjects of these last three stories, wherever you may be today. Um, And thank you to all my sources. Again, my sources are linked in the show notes. Uh, If you ever want sources for any of these truer episodes I do, they're all there. Um, So yeah, it's a link that goes to my website. Or you can just go straight to the website and click on the little sources tab if you have ever want to peruse a little further. Um, Yeah, so if you'd like... I mentioned it halfway through, but if you want to join Patreon, you get ad-free episodes and bonus episodes and all kinds of cool stuff. And I've been doing a lot with Patreon lately. I'm actually a Patreon ambassador now, um, which just means, you know, I get to go to meetings and talk about Patreon stuff. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a voluntary fun little position that I've taken on to reach out to other creators in my community. So if you're a creator, even if you're brand new, or if you don't even have a Patreon yet, there are a lot of resources um, that are going on over there that are a lot of fun. And if you want to join like any of the the clubs, I, I host a club every uh, two weeks called the Podcasters Support Club. We're already in session, so no one can join right now. But there's all kinds of clubs you can host or join. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, they they're great. So um, what else? Oh, next week I will be at Pod Movement in Dallas. Uh, Don't worry, there will be an episode. Uh, I'm going to actually be editing that this weekend and um, hopefully get it done before I leave because I really don't feel like editing in my hotel room. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going to be at Pod Movement in Dallas. So if you're there, uh, stop by and say hi. I don't have a booth, but I'm going to be doing a panel. I think I mentioned it with John Grills and Pacific Obadiah. John Grills, of course, of the Creepy Podcast and Pacific Obadiah of of the SCP Archives podcast. Um, So yeah, we're going to do a panel on horror fiction. I believe there are virtual tickets as well. Um, I'm not 100% how they work because I haven't looked into it since I'll be there, but look into those virtual tickets to see if maybe you can attend virtually or just attend just this panel or whichever panel you'd like. I'm very excited. I'm very tired. I've taken on a lot of projects. Like I just said, I'm hosting a club for Patreon. I just started this ambassador thing with Patreon. Um, for the last two months, I, I, even before the pandemic, I wasn't much of a traveler just because, uh, money wise, I don't don't know. Um, I don't have, I have never been, uh, had the funds to be a world traveler, but these last two months I've had July, I was gone for a week for my brother's wedding. This month I'm going to be gone for a week for this convention. It's been a lot going on, which is good. I'm very excited, but I haven't, it's two months in a row that I'm having a whole week away from my desk, basically. So it's, I've been very tired. I've been very overworked. I'm also working on a writing project 
for a completely different show that I won't even be hosting. I'm just writing for that I'm very excited about. So glad I got that opportunity. I really want to stretch, you know, stretch my wings and my limbs as a writer. So that's fun. Uh, I have some other stuff coming up that I thought I would be able to tell you about by now, but I can't. There is also the other language version of Scary to Sleep that I am working on that I'm very excited about. Uh, That is just finally, it's just started this week. We've really started production and I'm very, very excited about it. What else? Again, like I said, I have a lot on my plate. The other thing that I can't tell you yet, I thought I I really thought I would be able to by now, but I guess not. And also uh, send in those kids and teen stories. I haven't made up a flyer yet, but I am putting out a call for those kids and teen stories. I really want to get that done earlier this year. So the deadline is going to be earlier. I don't actually don't remember what the deadline was last year. It might not be earlier. It just feels earlier. I'm just swamped, which is good. It's good to be busy. But um, just so you know, just throwing that out there in case, you know, I I don't know. Sometimes I get backlash about how I'm not putting out enough (laughs) and uh, putting out enough content, content, not putting out enough. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Um, Oh, thank you for everyone who's asked about my new kitten, Clara Bow. She's amazing. I want to buy her a cat tree. So go subscribe to Patreon so I can buy Clara Bow a cat tree because she's getting into her climbing phase. She likes climbing up on the back of my office chair. And I thank God I just kept this like literally from a dumpster office chair because she's probably going to destroy the back of it in not too long of a time because she doesn't have anything to climb on and I need to get her something to climb on. I will also be doing a ramble video. I know I owe you one for August. Uh, Again, video too. Yeah, I really want to do a video. That's one reason it hasn't come out. I actually sat down to do a ramble days ago, like a week ago, and I just, it's like it wouldn't come out of me. I've been very, again, I've been very like my brain is in a million different places right now. So that's kind of why I want to have a video. I just feel like it's going to be something different. Maybe it'll kickstart my brain a little bit. Uh, Patreon subscribers, feel free. I know I've already asked for this, but if you want to again, feel free to send me topics you'd like me to talk about. And I will introduce Miss Clara Bow on the video too at one point. She probably won't stick around that long because she's a kitten and she's got places to go and people to see around this apartment but um I will introduce her on camera so you can see her she's adorable oh my god while I was recording that she managed to turn off my computer she just this little gremlin I love her so much but she did she did turn off she she unplugged my monitor she didn't turn off the whole thing she unplugged my monitor and it, it killed it like you know um she likes to go behind she has a bad habit of going behind my computer and walking that she doesn't bite the wires or anything but she walks on them and she just unplugged my monitor okay i'm gonna go because clearly someone she has gotten into a habit where she knows what time i'm kind of done recording and she gets like okay mom let's what are we doing like let's go to the living room and play what are what are you even doing so i'm gonna go tend to my child my cat child all right i never thought i'd say that i really like i've always had pets growing up but i just never thought i'd I don't know. This is just so new to me as an adult. So this has been great. Thank you so much for the support. I love you so much. I promise guided nightmares are coming. Original content is coming. I just have a lot on my plate right now and it's been hard to concentrate. It's honestly been hard. Guided nightmares. I need to like, 
I really get into the headspace I want you to be in to really give off. I, it's not a phony vibe of relaxation and, you know, a meditation type vibe, even if it's scary. It's all real. I really try to get into that headspace and I haven't been getting into that headspace lately. So uh, it's been a little difficult, but I promise they're coming. I see you've all been so kind, by the way. No one has been rude. Everyone's just been like, I really, really like guided nightmares. Wink, wink. And I see it. I see it. And I promise they're coming. I have two that I'm working on simultaneously right now. And they're also going to be available in Spanish soon. A few of them anyway. All right. I'm going to go. I love you. Drink your water or whatever makes you happy, but just stay hydrated, okay? Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.